Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown and in each episode of Inside Books we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers and more. You'll find Inside Books on all audio platforms and our Twitter handle is at InsideBooksIRE where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. My guest today is Henrietta McCurvey, the Belfast-born author who has written four novels in five years. And she's also a literary festival programmer, a podcast reviewer and a copywriter for the advertising industry. Her first book, What Becomes Us, was released in 2015 and was set in 1966 during the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising. This was quickly followed by a contemporary-based novel dealing with the topic of dementia before she returned to writing about the past. And the latest one is called A Talented Man and is set in the 1930s and is about a literary forgery. Henrietta has also been shortlisted for and won a number of awards for her short stories, including a Hennessy Award, and she was the inaugural winner of the UCD Maeve Binchy Travel Award. She also programmes the Echoes Festival, which celebrates Maeve Binchy. Henrietta, interestingly, you studied English and Italian in UCC. Now, English, I understand, given where you are today, obviously, but Italian... I think at the time I just wanted to do something I hadn't done before. And I had studied French for Leaving Cert and German for Intercert. And I just wanted to try a language that I i don't think I'd even been to Italy actually at the time. I just thought really? I will try something I've never done before that sounds like it might be interesting. And did it come easily to you? Not particularly. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it and it's great going on holidays now to still have a few words or be able to brush up and try and hold my own in a conversation. But it was quite an arbitrary reason for picking it really. Well, hopefully the writing came a bit easier, did it? Yes, it took a while because <laughs> I really only started writing about 11 years ago. So it did take a while, but yeah. So why did it take that long? I'm really not sure because I had thought about it a lot and it was something that sort of crept up on me quite slowly. I had always loved reading. There was always books in our house. We were always encouraged to read. And throughout my adult life, there's never been a time when I wasn't reading. And then occasionally I think, oh, I'd love to write a book, but I wouldn't know how to do it. And the thought would go away. And then as I got older, I realised I was starting to, if I bought a new book, I would look at the author's age. (laughs) And if they were much younger than me, it would make me really sad. (laughs) And then in the end, I realised if I didn't try writing, it was going to come between me and reading because I'd end up being an unhappy reader because I would feel frustrated. So I said, I'll give it a go. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. I'll have tried and I can just go back to being a happy reader. And, and if what, it works, great. what did you start with when it came to writing then? Um, I started with a couple of short stories right. um, and I found them very difficult. I still find novels easier now than short stories. I think I made that sort of rookie mistake of thinking, well, a, sh- a short story is short, so it must be more manageable. And of course, in lots of ways it is. It's not that big commitment of time and energy and the same space in your head that a novel takes up. But they are really hard, you know, and there's a flow to a novel once you get into it that I enjoy and find very satisfying. So I, d- I started with a couple of short stories, but quite quickly moved on to a novel. And when you started the novel, then did you find you obviously found it easier then just to get into it and keep going at it in comparison to the short stories? Yes, I did. Now, I had been working full time while I was still thinking all this through and I had Two, my children were quite young at the time and I just couldn't see how I could fit it all in. And actually, when I was on maternity leave with my second child, I saw there was a short story competition and I thought, right, I'll enter this. And if I win, I have permission to write full time for a while if I want to. 
just to try it. And I did win, which was amazing. So I thought, oh dear, I have to do the thing now I told myself <laughs> I would do. So I did. Um, I left my full-time job. I was working as a copywriter in an advertising and design agency. And I knew I'd get freelance work. So it, while it didn't feel like a massive a very frightening break in one way um, and my children were small and they'd been in you know full-time um, crash care since they were tiny so it was quite nice for them as well to be at home a little bit more and I thought right I'll try but I did pretty much immediately start by writing a novel. And isn't it funny how we nearly have to give ourselves permission to, to do this? I know I still look back I'm very glad I did but I don't know if I hadn't won that competition would I have allowed myself to go ahead and do it anyway I don't know. It's something I I don't like about myself that I feel that need to. I hate this has to be validated by this source or that source or. But that's what happened anyway. It just worked out well. So obviously you you carved out the time. You made the time and and you you created a new space so you could do this in your life. So how did how did you find it then initially? It was brilliant. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it was just so. I mean, it was slightly scary. In a different way that being published is scary. You know, when you start out and you're not published and your big dream is just to, well, I finish a book was, the, of course, the big dream. And then maybe find an agent or find a publisher or something might happen to it. You know, these are all these little dreams that keep moving on down the road the more you write. But just the sitting, writing, thinking of the ideas, trying to construct a sentence I found it immensely satisfying. And interestingly then, you know, your very first book, I mean, it was set in 1966. You didn't even bother setting it in today. You just went back a couple of decades. And then just to add to it, it was the 50th anniversary of the 1916 Rising. So again, has history been a thing for you? I didn't think, I mean, I wouldn't have said so. I didn't realise so. And now I realise I've written three of the four books that Mm -hmm. have been published are historical. But that wasn't, I never set out to write historical fiction. I mean, for me, it's just fiction set in the past. It's still fiction. It's still a narrative. It just happens to be at a different time. I suppose when I was started to write that book, What Becomes of Us, and I think I probably started it in, maybe it must have been around 2012. Um, Yeah, 2012. And there was still, there was talk about the rising was already beginning to loom. Do you remember 2015, there was the whole road to the rising. So it was, culturally, it was already starting to swell as a thing. And I did start to think about how, oh, that's kind of interesting. I can't imagine it was anything like this 50 years afterwards, when people involved were still alive, and the pain of it for people was a living memory. And that just got me really interested in that idea of how do we commemorate things? And how do we, in the past, do we, how, how we did things differently in the past to now? Huge amount of research involved, though. Yes. Yeah, it was very enjoyable. Mm. Yeah, um, but it was. There was an awful lot of research. Yeah. And I, I think yeah. that's the point of research as well. If it is a topic that you enjoy, it's it's not going to be a chore, but choose your, choose your topics carefully, I, I would have thought. So at what point then did you think or did you know that you had a novel? Well, when I was quite early on into it, I realised I needed some help or support or something. And there was a... Um, an evening class at the time, the Faber Novel Academy, which is the, you know, Faber Publishers, they were running a class here called, uh, I think it was called the Faber Novel or Write a Novel, something like that. Um, and I thought, right, I'll, I'll apply for that and sign up. And that and that was every Tuesday night for six months and one Saturday a month. So I started doing that and I met um, Ailish Nguivna was the tutor. And I had read some of her work before, but I had never met her. And that was such a boost, having somebody who knew exactly what they were doing who would look at your pages, discuss them with you, 
talk it through and herself and James Ryan ran the course and it was really, really good. In fact, I enjoyed it so much. They were both working on the um, MFA and Masters in Creative Writing in UCD. They both ran that course at the time. So I then applied for it. Not because I particularly wanted another qualification, but just so I could sit and learn from them for another two years. And how did you find their constructive criticism, I suppose, in terms of your work? Fantastic. I think probably from because I come from a copywriting background, I was really used to going into a room and presenting work and the people listening to it would have their pens in their hand the whole time I was speaking. That's just how it works in advertising. There's a very quick get to that doesn't work. That doesn't work. That does, you know. So certainly that feedback side of it didn't bother me. It didn't upset me the way I know it, some other people have friends would find it more troubling to have somebody do that with their work because they're just not used to it. Um, one of my very early meetings with Ailish, actually, when I had given her the first chapter of the book, and you you never sweat over a piece of work so much as the first chapter of your mm-hmm. first book. I mean, it was probably overwritten within an inch of its <laughs> life. You know? And she, I sat down and she said, oh, yes, I have lots to say, some very interesting things here. And she pushed the pages back across the table to me. And there was a line drawn through the entire first page oh, from God. top to bottom. And I thought, my page. And then she explained why I didn't need it and where the story I thought I was telling actually started as from for the reader. And it was brilliant. And it was such an, I kept the page. I have it on my desk. Framed. Yeah, I should frame it. Yeah, I have it pinned (laughs) up. That encourages you all the time. Yeah. And how long then did it take to write that first book? About a year, Mm -hmm. I think, because, which is the great thing about doing it in the structure of a course, because you always have a deadline. And again, from having worked you know, as a copywriter, I'm good with deadlines. I find them very motivating. Um, yeah, so I got it done, I would say, in about a year. So then what happened? How did you get a publisher? There was a huge amount of luck in that for me. Now, I had started to send it out. I had contacted agents. I had contacted publishers. I was sending out chapters. And I had had some interest from one publisher, which went on for quite quite a long time, like about six months. So mm-hmm. it was sort of dragging on so long I knew it wasn't really going to work out. And I didn't have an agent at this point. So I was sort of doing these things myself with a bit of advice from friends. And then um, there was a Hachette book launch. Uh, Deirdre Parcel was launching a book and her daughter-in-law is a good friend of mine. And m- my friend Catherine said to me, come along to this book launch and I will introduce you to her editor. And you can pitch them your book, like, you know, get a few lines in your head and be ready to pitch your book. And on the evening, it was, I don't know, it was raining and it was miserable and my ki- whatever I had going on at home. I just thought, you know what, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to get to talk to anybody. It's really nice, Catherine, but it's not going to happen. So I texted her and said, you know, what, I'm not going to go. It's I just and I didn't. And then she texted me later that night saying, well, because you couldn't be bothered coming along. I pitched your book oh, for I you. I love it. The best friend ever. Yeah. <laughs> and you are, here's an email address and you're to contact her tomorrow and send her something. So it was Kira Constantine So I emailed her the following day saying, oh, my friend Catherine, blah, blah, and sent her a chapter. And she got back almost immediately and said, can you send me some more? And I said, yes. And then about two weeks later, she said, would you like to meet for a coffee? And I thought that's really kind of her, like clearly because she's, you know, it's Catherine or, you know, she's just being very nice and she's going to talk me through maybe what I could do and how I might change it or how I should approach, you know, getting it published. And I met her and she offered me a two book deal. Wow. Yeah. Okay, you weren't expecting that I over a coffee. absolutely was not expecting that at <laughs> so all. So once brilliant. you picked yourself above the floor, yeah. um, what happened then? It was really exciting because I was because I was still doing the MFA at this point. So that first book was not far off done. And I was getting ready to start a second one. And because of the delay between, you know, a book being accepted Mm -hmm. for publication and the publishing date, it worked really well for me because by the time What Becomes of Us came out, I was actually nearly finished the book afterwards, The Heart of Everything, which came out a year later. So I wasn't 
I wasn't still in the middle of the second book while the first one was coming mm. out and being reviewed and all of those things, which I, I maybe could be quite off-putting, I suppose, or yeah, quite distracting. You know, it was already so done. So many authors have said that to us, that if you can get yourself into a situation where the second one is nearly done before the first one is even coming out, that that's the best way to go, you know. And and uh, as you said, the second one, it did follow quite quickly. And what, what I was interested in is the first one was historical. Um, the second one, though, was more modern day. Um, and then you moved on to the, you know, the third one, which went back to his, historical again. So I'm interested in that switch from writing about the past to writing about the present. Did it just come naturally or was were they conscious decisions? They weren't particularly conscious decisions. No, it always is just the thing that I think I want to write about. And then just how best do you tell that story? And the heart of everything, which is about a an older woman with dementia who goes missing. It just had to be a contemporary story as far as I was concerned. And then, of course, for the third book, Violet Hill, I, I remember journalists saying to me at the time, oh, you write crime now. And I said, do I? <laughs> and he said, well, it's a crime book. I went, is it? Oh, yeah, I suppose it is. Again, I just, I hadn't been thinking of it in those ways. I just thought, oh, well, this is a really interesting story about these characters and this is what happens and just write the story. And what I love about Violet Hill, and this is the reason why they think it's a crime novel, is because it's about two detectives who are working the same case, but a hundred years apart. So what's interesting about the third book is you've now combined a narrative in the past with a narrative in the present. So the work you'd done on the first two books obviously really, you know, fed into this one. Yes, that's true, I suppose. And actually, when I was writing Violet Hill, I was thinking what you were saying earlier about research. I do remember writing and thinking, how many periods of research have you given yourself here? <laughs> it's probably three, because there was a whole, there's a character whose life mainly is in the 60s, even though we meet her in the present day. So there's a whole bit of research for that, plus all the historical post-World War One and the contemporary, the super recognizer research. So it was three very distinct things, but they were all very enjoyable. So the first two books you had a two book deal for. So yes. what happened then with the, with Violet Hill? Was it just extended or a new deal? Um, no, I was offered a new deal, a new two book deal, and Violet Hill was the first of those two with the same yeah. publisher with the same publisher oh, yeah very good yeah. and then the fourth one um your most recent one is a talented man and again you're going back to like the 1930s but again another really i don't know where you get these ideas from but they're really original premises and it's about literary forgery um relating to a fictional sequel of bram stoker's dracula like where did you pull that from i know yeah it originally came from i was fascinated by bram stoker's wife florence lemon balcom was her name and i'd heard about her in a couple of different places but she always seemed to be mentioned as an incredibly beautiful woman who had been engaged to Oscar Wilde and left him for Bram Stoker was the main <laughs> point of reference. And I Full thought, stop. Was that like, it? Good, but surely this, you know, there must be more to it than that. And then I came across her again because after he died, she was absolutely determined to ensure his legacy wasn't abused. So it was her who um, prevented the German film company from releasing the Prince of Nosferatu, the unauthorised version of Dracula that they did. And apparently she was very tough. Like she used the Society of Authors as her own sort of legal firm. (laughs) Um, And I was kind of, so I was really interested in her was actually how I got into thinking about Dracula because I hadn't read the book for years. And then I started thinking, it's kind of odd that he never wrote a sequel. Like he wrote so many books Mm -hmm. and a lot of them aren't very good. And some of them were great. But I thought, why didn't he ever try writing that? And I thought, I'm surprised nobody else has written a sequel. Mm. And it just sort of, spun out from there really what does your publisher say when you come to them with these mad ideas I know (laughs) (laughs) I know they have been very tolerant I must say but I yeah I was thinking it would be really hard to try and even 
frame the four books, I think, apart from their being written by the same person. I can't really see any. Well, it's funny. That was my next crossover. question, which is like, how, how do you classify your writing? What do you call it yourself? I, I just call it fiction because right. I can't really land on anything else. And I'm sure that is frustrating for a publisher and it's pretty hard to see what the where it lands fully. I suppose the talented man is crime. I mean, it was considered a psychological thriller, so it's definitely crime. So I suppose the last two you could say are crime. But that wasn't my intention in setting out to write them. You obviously just are focused on writing about what you enjoy then. Yeah, I just a story that I think is interesting and a premise. And also there's usually one thing that I'm trying to figure out what I think about it. So in A Talented Man, it's forgery and people and passing themselves off as something else and how fraudulent people are in their lives. And because Bram Stoker himself wrote a book called Famous Imposters in 1910, because he was fascinated by imposters and frauds. Um, so that just kind of thought it tied into it really nicely. But that was really what was the thing that fascinated me most in that. And how long does it take you now to write one? Um, so far, they've each been about a year plus, you know, editing time and all of that sort of stuff. But last year, the pandemic really slowed me down. Mm. So I'm actually about a year behind at the moment. Interesting. And a number of authors have said that to us on Inside Books. It's very reassuring to hear. They have, um, that they just felt stuck, actually, um, and just couldn't progress as much as as they would have liked to. Um, But I mean, four novels in five years, you're you're not stuck, really, are you? (laughs) Well, no, and I did. I did have to give myself a really good talking to about not panicking about it. Mm. And actually, I was talking to Ailish Nguivna about it and she was saying exactly that, like, you're allowed to have a rest. Like you can just be a bit worn out from doing that. And and I was still doing loads of other things as well. You know, I still do some copywriting work and I write book reviews and podcast reviews. So they always have other things going on. But I certainly got behind with the book. And has your approach changed? I mean, do you still devote a number of hours a day to it or, or what way do you make it work for you? Um, my approach in terms of the time I give to it is probably quite consistent. Like put a lot of hours to it and just showing up. There's um, a Kingsley Amos quote, which is something, I think it's the uh, the art of writing is the art of applying the seat of one's pants to the seat of the chair. They are correct. Yeah, exactly. Very you, correct. Yeah, and you just sit down and show up or else it's never going to happen. Um, but I do now, I think, having written a few books already, I don't feel that panic if something doesn't work immediately. I think just keep writing. Yeah. Just keep writing. You can go back and fix it. You know, you just step I do like I, I save a new copy every time so I always have a step back I think right the worst thing you've done is lose a day's work you just step back to the previous mm-hmm. day's work and pick it up and you just call so. it draft draft one draft ten draft exactly draft 26 <laughs> exactly. draft everything yeah. exactly. exactly and what are you working on at the moment I um well I had two ideas again completely different one historical one contemporary so because the contemporary one has been knocking around in my head for a while I have decided I'm going to stick with it to the end, um, which actually is going much better than I had thought it was a few months ago. So I'm hoping by early next year that'll be full first draft. And finished. did you have a block or something or, or did you have a, a wobble at any point where you thought, is this going to work? Should I continue or not? Yes, I definitely did, because it's just quite a tough subject. And I do find writing contemporary harder than writing in the past, actually. I, I you know there's something so immersive about writing in the past that I can just go off there and swim around in it much more easily, I think, than I can in contemporary life um, so I've thought I'm going to see this one through to the end and then the other idea I had which is historical I will go back to next year and see what happens from yeah. there you also review books so again like being a writer yourself how do you approach it with great care 
Mm. I hope. <laughs> and I hope the yeah. people I review would say the same because you are holding somebody's heart in your hands when you're reviewing their book. And I do think it's it's a responsibility and it's also an honour to be asked to review somebody else's book. And so I am very careful with it. Um, if there's things I think work, I will always say them. If there's things I think don't work, I try and say it positively. Mm -hmm. um, I certainly the idea of going in and tearing strips off somebody else's work, I would never, ever do. Um, but it's very interesting and it does also make you think about your own work mm -hmm. when you're reading somebody else's with that sort of way of picking it apart as opposed to a, a happy reader sitting enjoying the narrative, you know. And reading is so subjective because, again, I could love one book and you could read the same book and go, didn't work for me. Yeah, which is so. one of the things that's wonderful about it, you know, that no two people will experience the same book in the same way. You review podcasts as well, interestingly, for The Irish Independent and full disclosure, you've even reviewed Inside Books. But again, you know, how do you find reviewing audio versus print? Well, I love audio. When I um, I used to do a lot of radio ads when I worked in copywriting in, for an advertising agency and writing radio, was I always preferred it to writing TV. I found it so much more interesting and enjoyable and the world you can conjure up through the audio I liked. So over the last, I mean, probably over about 10 years, I've got more and more into listening to podcasts. Actually, I would say my reading time is probably divided in two now between listening. I never really got into audiobooks, but between podcasts and fiction, I'd say I probably split in two. Um, so with the podcast, again, it's slightly different to reviewing a book because I tend to review things that I already like, mm -hmm. that I think work or have something worth listening to. Because I think the point of a, an article or a column like that is to say to people, there's this really good show out there and these are some reasons why I like it and these are some reasons why you may like it and these are some interesting things about it. As opposed to a book review where you're trying to be fair, yes, but also you may not land at the point in the end where this book is possibly not worth the time of you know that whatever um so I think with the podcast I do try and pick things that I have already been listening to for a while or have enjoyed or there is something new or quirky or inventive about them that I think deserves a wider listenership. Absolutely and to share the love more yeah. than anything else and you mentioned radio as well and obviously you've written for for ads for radio and for tv but have you ever thought about writing for radio as in a radio play or a drama? I'd love to actually yeah and um, when I when I won the Maeve Binchy the Travel Award the UCD Travel Award in 2014 and I did a tour of the shipping forecast was my project um, and I did write a radio play I mean, just for myself at the end of it, that was what I did with the work because afterwards I thought it felt like an audio because the shipping forecast obviously was the, the the BBC Radio 4 version of the shipping forecast was the one I was talking about. So it's only ever broadcast on radio. So in the end, I thought this isn't actually a visual piece. This is an audio piece. So that's what I did with it in the end was I wrote a radio play. So hopefully you might have a couple of those then that we can we can listen to at some point. Be in the fantastic. Next, the next yeah, I'd love years. that. And speaking of, of the literary festivals then as well. So and, and Maeve Binchy, you program Echoes, um, which is dedicated to her. And the most recent one was only a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. And it was great. It was so lovely being back in a room with real people, you know, having real conversations. It worked really well. Now, obviously, because we hadn't we weren't able to do the Echoes in 2020, it, it felt like quite a big not risk this year, but it, felt, it was a big challenge. And you also, you weren't sure, are people going to really want to come out? Are they, you know, but it was gorgeous on the day. I remember standing outside the venue on the Saturday morning and just seeing all these happy little heads walking <laughs> towards the door. It was just great. How yeah. do you make it fresh then, you know, with a literary festival? How do you make it fresh every time, especially if it's running every year? 
Well, we, we theme it. So this year, the, the our theme was this year it will be different. Um, where we were looking at, and often the theme is sort of a springboard from Maeve Binchy's work. So, for example, in the past, we've had a theme of her as a social chronicler. So Maeve Binchy looked, when you actually go back and look through, particularly the journalism and the earlier fiction, the themes that she was looking at, nobody else was talking about those things. Divorce and alcoholism and abortion and infertility and things that nobody else in the 60s, 70s and on were discussing in the same way. So there's a lot of material within her work to give us springboards. So I think we could go on for many years, actually, and be inspired by Maeve every time. Well, Henrietta McCurvey, thank you for joining us here on Inside Books. And you'll find a talented man online or at your local bookshop now. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at Inside Books I-R-E. And if you want to hear other episodes, just search for us on the various audio platforms. And don't forget to leave us a rating or a view. I'm Breda Brown. Keep reading. Inside Books is a unique media production.